In our previous episode on who was Plato, we quoted Alfred North Whitehead as saying, all of philosophy is a series of footnotes to Plato. But for almost 1500 years, many philosophers and historians believed that all of knowledge, including philosophy, was a footnote to Aristotle. The philosopher, with a capital P, as he is known, contributed greatly in fields of biology to rhetoric, physics to ethics. But what made Aristotle so special? And why should we care about Aristotle today after so much of his work, such as the sun rotating around the earth, has been disproven? Furthermore, Aristotle makes ethical claims that go against foundational points in modern society, that women are inferior to men and that some people are natural slaves. The work and influence of Aristotle is ingrained in Western society and thought. But why is this the case? And should it still be the case? Join us this week on Open Door Philosophy as we explore the question, who is Aristotle? Welcome to Open Door Philosophy, a podcast where I, a current philosophy and classics major and my former philosophy teacher, unpack philosophical ideas in an understandable way. I'm Andrew Graziano, and over there is Mr. Parsons. Hey! And today we're going to answer the question, who was Aristotle? Mr. Parsons, how's it going? Uh, it's going pretty good. It's, it's autumn, sort of. Autumn in Texas is always a sort of. It seems like we do summer and then uh, sort of fiddle around with autumn a bit, and then it's on to winter. So anyway, yeah, it's good. We've uh, we've bought our gourds, so they are sitting out front mm. of our house with those autumn vibes. Anyway, how's it going with you? I'm just pretty busy. Uh, nothing else is pretty new. I'm super excited for this episode, though. Aristotle's uh, Aristotle. I really like Aristotle. We can talk more about that later, but. He's pretty cool. Yeah, Aristotle's your boy. Yeah, yeah. Let's let's definitely talk about that in a minute. But okay. I'm trying to I'm trying to think of something, something to say, something to talk about. About your life? A life as a college student is very boring and the same all the time. Rice won a football <laughs> game yesterday. I think we're gonna make a bowl game. Hey, that's exciting. Yeah. So that's that, exciting. That, that'll be for great. Rice. I don't know what their uh record is there in the past as far as bowl games go so that's that's exciting i don't know if we've mentioned this before i know mr mr parsons i think you've mentioned that you're a big soccer fan but i'm a big yes. football fan <laughs> i think we did mention that you in, mean american with, football uh, american football real football <laughs> um, oh, oh oh right <laughs> real football anyway last time rice w- was in a bowl game was in 2014 so it's been okay a, <laughs> it's yeah been a good for bit. them that's exciting yeah. Well, Tech University of Texas lost yesterday, so regardless of any of the other results, I'm happy. It's so. always a good. Well, yeah. A <laughs> and M lost too. Oh, really? Yeah. Huh. Well, that's always that's that's always good too. Does an Oklahoma boy's heart good? <laughs> <laughs> All right, guys. So it's Aristotle, the third of the big three that we're talking about today. Now, I do want to give a disclaimer at the beginning of this episode. Aristotle's work, much like Plato's and Socrates, is just so vast. Uh, I mean, this is going to be like a 50-minute episode or so. We're not going to go super deep into any of his theories because he is so influential, like Andrew mentioned in the intro, in so many different areas. So this is really just going to be an overview of Aristotle and his main ideas and, and a bit of his history. So anyway, just wanted to preface everything with that before we get into it. So for 45 episodes, I think I've mentioned multiple times in each episode that I really like Aristotle. And so I should probably talk about that before we get into Aristotle. Yes. It's kind of like a therapy couch session here. <laughs> I guess so. Yeah. I, I don't know what that... Let's, let's dig deeply into this, you know. I'm thinking of uh, Tony Soprano on uh, that lady's whatever <laughs> <name> is, couch. <laughs> yes. Uh, anyway, so there's a lot that I like about Aristotle. And there's a lot I don't like as well, which is not shouldn't be surprising. But one reason I really like Aristotle goes back to his method. So when I first came to college, uh, one of the big things that I was thinking about was in thinking about philosophy is I want to go back to the roots of it so I can understand philosophy as a whole. So the thought was like, if I study Aristotle and Plato in depth, then I'll be able to better understand 
Nietzsche and, and Kant and all of these people who draw on him instead of just skipping to Kant. But unfortunately for me, I got really captivated with the classics, with Aristotle and Plato. And I mentioned this on the last episode. I like Plato because he's fun to read. He's fun to play. He's fun to play with, not to. But Aristotle is different. And I think it's mostly from his method, which we'll talk about a little bit later. I disagree with a lot of Aristotle's ideas on politics and ethics. He's clearly wrong in biology and in some of his physical principles, too. Metaphysics has some weird points, and I don't agree with his idea of the soul. But the way he approaches questions, the way he thinks about things, the way that he holistically thinks about philosophy and science together and uses them as bouncing points off for one another, it's very inspiring for me and something that I try to do when I think about questions in philosophy. And that's really the reason why I, I like Aristotle so much. I do like things in his ethics and his politics too, and his metaphysics, and the way he thinks about the soul, but it's primarily for the method, and we'll talk a little bit about that more later. Yeah, it is interesting when you think about philosophers and their influence on philosophy as a whole, kind of like where they fit in with the the history of philosophy and the context of philosophy, or, or the evolution of philosophical thought. How about that? You know, the, some philosophers are incredibly important, even if you may not agree with all of their points. A great example is Nietzsche, I think. Uh, a lot of People are frustrated with Nietzsche. Uh, they, uh, some people label him an, an anti-philosopher. But that transition from like sort of the modern era to the postmodern era, Nietzsche is very important with that and raises a number of really interesting points. With me and Nietzsche, probably similar with Andrew, I like Nietzsche's thought, his project, and his process. But I don't know that I agree certainly with with everything. Yeah, that's important to note. You know, when you're studying uh, so many philosophers, you might not agree with with everything they say and think that doesn't discount their importance in the evolution of philosophy, philosophical thought. Even if you disagree with Aristotle, think about the method that he uses. And we'll talk we'll, when we talk about this, because it's, it's very important in thinking about later philosophy as a whole. Many philosophers has, have adopted a similar method. And like mm -hmm. I mentioned in the intro, Aristotle was so ingrained in, in Western thought pretty much until the 1600s when he was kind of radically tossed out but his influence is still there so if you want to understand a lot of philosophy and the process of philosophy you really need to get a really good understanding of at least aristotle's method yeah and that kind of gets us to background and influence right so so many thinkers after aristotle are either labeled a platonist or an aristotelian plato is incredibly influential aristotle's incredibly influential and so many that come after them we're like, yeah, Augustine was a Platonist and Aquinas is an Aristotelian. And I mean, modern philosophers even still grapple with, uh, with this identification. You know, what, what school do they land in or what side do they land on? And that in and of itself just shows the tremendous influence of, of both of these great thinkers from Greece. Yeah, so let's talk about his background a little bit. As we traditionally do first, Aristotle's dates were 384 to 322 BC. Let's just kind of frame this in a moment of history, at least his birth. So 384 is, is what, 15 years after Socrates was killed. So he's not directly from the Socratic lineage. In fact, he's not even from Athens at all. Aristotle was born in northern Macedonia and was raised in, in probably a rather wealthy-ish household. Um, I think his dad, like Aristotle would later take up in his studies, his father was a physician. I think his father was a court physician too for Alexander the Great's dad, King Philip of Macedonia, who is very, very contentious for the Greeks in his own right. Anyway, when, when Aristotle was getting older into his age, he went down to Athens to study at the academy like so many people in the Mediterranean did at that time, it was, it was very common for men around the Mediterranean to come and study uh, with the Greeks. So Aristotle came down to study with Plato in the academy. Yeah, and so his time at the academy under the tutelage of Plato was incredibly foundational for him. And he was, you know, by a number of accounts, probably the, the best of Plato's students. And 
Yeah, the question was, as, as Plato was growing older, was, you know, who, who's going to take over the academy? This was a big question. You know, this isn't like a public school where, you know, it just keeps going and they just cycle in new principles or whatever. This is a, a private school founded by Plato. And so who's going to take over after Plato's gone? And of course, there was a number of great candidates, but it was largely assumed that Aristotle would be the person. But when Plato dies, and I can't remember exactly why this was the case, but the running of the schools passed to, I want to say his cousin. So it kind of stays in the family, if you will. And Aristotle uh, leaves the academy after that and begins traveling all throughout Greece, uh, categorizing, as we'll talk later, over 500 different species of animals. This is a very prolific time for him. And then also heads up north back to Macedonia and becomes the tutor of Alexander the Great. And then after his time with Alexander the Great, there is some political upheaval. Don't know that we'll really go into it, but Philip II and Alexander the Great, well, really Alexander the Great, campaigns down in Greece. And, and Aristotle founds his own school called the Lyceum, which he was running for really, I, th- I want to say, you can correct me if I'm wrong here, Andrew, if you know better. I want to say he did that till almost the last year of his life. And then for whatever reason, I can't recall, he left. Yeah, we just have to keep in mind that there's a in Athens at this time, there's a lot of anti-Macedonian sentiment that um, is present, which which might have been one of the reasons some scholars, apart from Aristotle feeling kind of PO'd about not taking over after Plato, could have been one of the reasons that he also left and, and might have been one of the reasons that Aristotle left right before his death too it, there's a, there's a lot of uh, speculation around the end of aristotle's death apparently there was a conflict with alexander the great aristotle disagreeing with a lot of his stuff and some scholars even in antiquity they said that and i think this is really cool that aristotle might have played a, de- a hand in uh, alexander the great's death but that's probably not true <laughs> that is interesting but uh let me just mention In that time that you mentioned, I think you mentioned this, when he came back to Athens after traveling around the Aegean and the Mediterranean after his studies, that period from 335 to 323, like you mentioned, the year before his death, that's when he composed most of his works and dialogues. Now, let me mention, if someone even briefly looks at a work by Plato and a work by Aristotle, they're markedly different. Plato is, is in a dialectic. Aristotle is, is kind of lecture notes. It's, it's very dry. And so the style is something to note of difference, but most scholars believe that Aristotle's work was in this originally dialectic form and that those fragments don't survive. But what do survive are kind of lecture notes that he gave written down. And this is kind of where we get the idea of philosophical treatises. And, you know, they, they have merits too. We could do an entire episode about that. But he's probably most important that he composed in this time. And, and we'll mention all of these are the physics, the metaphysics, the Nicomachean ethics, the politics on the soul and poetics. Those are the most famous. But like we mentioned, Aristotle did a lot too. He also is credited with being the first person to really write about logic. Um, he came up with the very famous syllogism. All men are mortal, all Greeks are men, all Greeks are mortal. You can see this just change in, in philosophy from, from these early treatises. Yeah, it's a pity we don't have his polished works, you know. And there's, there's reference to them in other Greek sources that Aristotle did have this library of, just like with Plato, of, of works that were highly looked over and edited and polished to be a really lovely piece of of philosophical writing. Those are largely lost to us, like Andrew said, with the exception of fragments. So very similar to Epictetus, which we had a couple of episodes with Robin Waterfield. We only know of Epictetus from largely his lecture notes, and it's not too terribly similar with Aristotle. Uh, I think really, Andrew, like what's, what's interesting is the difference between, even though it's lecture notes, but the difference between Aristotle's writing and Plato's. They're both so good, <laughs> you know, but Aristotle's, boy, it just reads so, so clearly, if that's the right word to use. Does that make sense, that description? Yeah, completely. I think that's, that's exactly right. Plato, his works are, are a piece of, of work. Socrates might not be right in all the ways, or Plato might not have intended for 
Socrates' logic to be always correct. He wants the student to be engaging. It's a piece mm-hmm. of work to read Plato. For Aristotle, he, these treatises are not like that. They're meant to be clear. I mean, it's, it's difficult to read a sentence maybe, but you're going to get the idea if you understand the sentence. Completely different with Plato. Completely different. Yeah, I'm trying to think to how to describe, like Plato's writing is, is lofty and is meant to raise us to the heights of the world of forms, you know, through beautiful language. Whereas Aristotle's, and this probably comes from his father's physician background, honestly, like Aristotle describes things in such stark terms. There's not a lot of that. I don't want to say it's not inspirational, but Plato wants to bring you to the heights of thought. And uh, Aristotle's like, nah, man, let's just take a look at what's around us and talk about those in clear terms. Let me mention two things on this point real quick. I did want to mention this and I forgot. Aristotle's father was a physician in the court of, of Philip of Macedonia. His father's name was Nicomachus, which is also the name of Aristotle's son. We'll talk a little bit about that in a minute. But Aristotle's father taught Aristotle's basic biology and medicine when Aristotle was a very young boy. And we know that he taught him this when he was young, very young, is because Aristotle's father, both of his parents died very early in Aristotle's life, around the age of barely prepubescent. And so such an integral part of Aristotle's education, even before studying philosophy with Plato, was this biological and medicinal way of thinking. And that is very evident. Let me just read just a comparison for the audience real quick, because I think this will really spell it out. Here's the first line of Plato's Republic. I went down to the Piraeus yesterday with Glaucon, the son of Ariston. Aristotle, every art and every inquiry, and similarly every action and choice, is thought to be aimed at some good. And for this reason, the good has rightly been declared to be that at which all things aim. When you read that first line from Plato, you're just thinking, what the heck is going on? Why is he telling us about what Socrates did? Who cares? But with Aristotle, it's, it's clear what's going on. He's just clearly stating this observation that he's making about the world. And that's just a huge difference between the two. Yeah, that sums it up perfectly. So before we move into examining Aristotle's ethical works and philosophical works as a whole, I want to talk about his methods, really two main methods that he uses in all of his works. The first one is that Aristotle reasons from first principles. Now, Aristotle defines first principles as the first basis from which a thing is known. And we can really see this influence of science or the influence on science, too, of Aristotle's way of thinking. He's looking at the natural world. He's making an observation, not from what other people say, not from a textbook, not from popular opinion, but he's just making an observation of what seems clearly to be true and reasoning off of that. And the really point of why he does that is because, one, he doesn't want to have his beliefs founded upon principles that are just incorrect. And two, you're just going to make better judgments if you reason from a, and and it's very connected to the first point, you're going to make better judgments and reasons and a better conclusion if you argue on something that's firm and, and foundational. And so if you argue from something that's a first principle, something that is obviously true, then the conclusion that you reach is going to be very strong. An example of this is in, well, I just read an example, but I'll give you a a shorter one. (laughs) An example of this is in Aristotle's metaphysics. Usually the first line of all of Aristotle's works are from first principles. And it's usually a sentence that's kind of some truth that seems like a big, bold claim, but probably is not. So Aristotle's metaphysics starts with all men by nature desire to know. And his reason for believing this is that we take delight in our senses for even apart from their usefulness, they are loved for themselves. So he says, basically, we just get a joy out of seeing 
out of tasting, out of smelling, out of touching. We are happy with them not because they allow us to do a job or a task. We don't value our eyes because they allow us to input taxes or something. We just like the ability to see. And from that, he reasons that humans just desire to know things. And so that's an example of the reasoning from first principles. Mr. Parsons, do you want to say anything about that before I go to second point? Well, just the methodology is so important as far as the the future of of philosophy and how it's conducted in its methodology, right? So another great example of first principles would be Rene Descartes and his investigation of what is real and what he can trust and what he cannot trust. And of course, he cannot trust or his conclusion is or his thinking is. How about that? His thinking is he cannot trust his senses and he goes through the reasons for that. And so what is the one thing that he can put trust in? And that one thing that he can put trust in is the fact that he is a thinking thing. He thinks, therefore he is. And so that is his first principle, right? Like he clears the rubble and gets all the way down to the foundation of that first principle. I think, therefore I am, and then can construct arguments based upon that solid foundation. So it's just another example I think, of how influential the, the idea of first principles is. So the second method that Aristotle loves to use is, is what's called endoxia. Now, endoxia sounds almost contrary to his, his reasoning from first principles, but endoxia, endoxia just means belief. I don't know what in means, actually. Endoxia, is that where we get like doctrine from? Yeah, it's just a belief. Mm-hmm. And so endoxia is basically... It's an idea that people hold that is so commonplace, so normal, something that everyone holds, or the views of the majority. It can really extend more than that, too, like the, from experts and famous people. But it's primarily a view that most people hold or that everyone holds. And what Aristotle does with endoxic beliefs is he gives credence to them. And not in the sense that he blindly accepts them, but he thinks that beliefs that are so popular and so common that most people hold, he really needs to examine them. Because one reason is that if a group believes them and they've been debated, probably they've been thought about a lot, they're probably pretty strong beliefs. But also it's just a popular belief. And so, like I said, he doesn't say that these are right, but he, he wants to examine them. And this is a really good, um, and I'll give an example of a minute, but this is a really good contrast with Plato because Plato hated and basically condemned starting from endoxic beliefs because... Yeah, this is really what we'd call, I guess, common sense knowledge, right? So common to the populace. Yeah, exactly. It is common sense knowledge. Or, and, or, or common within a culture, right? Yeah, Exactly. Aristotle uses these beliefs as kind of starting places for debate on a topic. I'm trying to find an example now from Aristotle, but if I can't in a second, then I will. Oh, I know exactly. (laughs) So this is a very famous example that Aristotle uses. He says that Greek culture, ancient Greek culture to us, holds this idea from Homer, I think, where I don't want to embarrass myself in, in front of the classical listeners, but he says, you know, the Greeks have this idea that you're never going to be completely, you can never be content with your happiness because one day, like at the end of your life, he uses an example of this famous guy from Greek mythology. You can maybe one day at the end of your life be super wealthy up until then, super wealthy, super happy, have super good kids, whatever. And then on the last day of your life, you get robbed your children get like killed in front of your eyes and then you're burned to death. And so he examines that popular belief by questioning, well, is it really true that uh, we can never be content with our, our state of happiness? And I think this is a really good method because popular beliefs are popular and presumably they're popular for a reason. Their popularity doesn't mean that they're true, but it's something you know that society holds and, and that we should think about closely. And that's a big method in his rhetoric and his logic and his topics um, and his ethics and his physics, everything. Do you want to say anything about that, Mr. Parsons? Uh, no. <laughs> I don't think so. Uh, I mean, uh, the only thing I would say would 
be sort of echoing what you said is just that's a that's a really fascinating point. Well, no, I guess I do have something to say about that. Yeah, echoing what you said, that's a really fascinating way to conduct philosophy because so many of our philosophical questions are existential questions, at least our, our very early entry to philosophy are typically existential questions. And of what we consider common sense is from our daily life, from our existence. And we do know that some of those things are wrong, or at least should be some degree of scrutiny should be applied to them to, to test their validity. So you can think of simple things like, oh, you know, holding doors for people when, when they're coming. Uh, you know, that's kind of a, a common sense thing that we do, at least in, in our part of the world. And is that that important to investigate? Eh, probably not. It's very minor. Uh, might lead to some interesting conclusions. But, you know, some other more popular or rather more deeply embedded common sense beliefs, something like liberty and freedom is worth dying for. That's a big one that's that's is commonly held for a lot of people. And, you know, that would be a, a fascinating place to start a philosophical dialogue. So let's quickly talk about Aristotle on biology real quick, because this is important for his ethics. Basically, Aristotle studied biology a lot, studied the natural world. I think some people say that Aristotle was the first person to study biology systematically because the methods that he uses in philosophy, like reasoning from first principles, using logic, whatever, he's using observation of the world, like we mentioned, from first principles. And that's not confined only to philosophical thought. It's also just like observing animals and and natural features of the world. Aristotle wrote a lot about bees. I think his observation on bees is still pretty important. But I think what's most interesting about Aristotle is his discussion of, and this is important in his ethics too in a minute, but Aristotle talks a lot about the function of um, animals. And that's how he kind of looks at them. He notices their function first and foremost when he studies them, in particular like their anatomy, their bone structure. Some people have even said that Aristotle kind of prefigured Charles Darwin, because Charles Darwin also noticed animals' functions and how biologically structured and and their bone structure and such. And the reason I'm mentioning this is important in a second. And this is a very, very brief glimpse of Aristotle's biology. But before we move on, Mr. Parsons, do you want to talk about this at all? Yeah, I mean, just the only thing is to expand upon it. He was really the first classifier of living things with those qualities that you mentioned. He, he distinguished over 500 species of animals and had, like you mentioned, talking about function, he had 11 different grades of animals based on various qualities, which really is a precursor to the types of classification we use today. It's common in biology with taxonomy, with things like kingdom, phylum, class. Uh, he was a classifier, and uh, he's really the first person, at least that is heavily recorded, to approach nature in this way versus, say, like the pre-Socratics, you know, where they're like, obviously their claims were based on observation, like everything is fire or everything is water. But Aristotle's is so, I don't know if this is the right term, but so clinical that it really gets into specifics of things. He really looks so closely at the world around him rather than being caught up in abstract thought. So yeah, he was a classifier. And and that has, like you said, a lot to do with his other other philosophy as well. You kind of mentioned this. Is he considered the first scientist? Uh, I don't know about the first scientist, but uh, maybe like yeah. the first holistic scientist. I think like some of those yeah. pre-Socratics could be considered scientists. Sure, 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 sure. Yeah. Maybe scientists in the way we think about it, where yeah. Aristotle's basically the inventor of the scientific method. Yeah. So, so maybe science as we think about it, for sure, for sure, for sure. Yeah, and, and again, I think of the influence of his father uh, being a physician. I mean, this, this had to have a tremendous amount of influence on the way that he looked at the world. Plato, and I'm not sure Plato's background. We- the reason I wanted to mention biology is because of Aristotle's use of, of thinking about the function in his ethical thought. As we mentioned, Aristotle classifies function, the function of a thing with its anatomy. But what he's also thinking about is he also doesn't limit that study of biology just to animals. And so he thinks about in the Nicomachean Ethics, which is named after his son Nicomachus, he uses this biological approach to think about humans as well. 
he notices some unique features about human beings, which is something similar Mr. Parsons talked about in his classifications. One, one of which is he notices that humans are rational animals. That's basically his biological classification of humans. And since we're bio, uh, rational animals, he considers why we have that function. What's that function and, and how does that matter to us? And he goes on kind of a long tirade and uh, thinking about function. He determines that the function of the human being, of the human animal, is basically to reason well, which is not surprising. And he thinks that reasoning well will lead us to a state of eudaimonia. And when I say reasoning well, it means reasoning, reasoning excellently. Excellence means arete in Greek. And that's how we get the idea of virtue. When we, we reason well, we reason with virtue. And so we act with virtue in all things because reason, this is important. So if we're rational animals, all of our actions are going to be informed by our reason, or at least that's how we should be because if we're not, we're wasting this potential. So if all of our actions are done with reason, if we're reasoning well, then all our actions are going to have virtue. And so that's how he gets to that. And the reason that that's good for us is because that will lead us to a state of happiness. Yeah, he talks a lot about happiness and the ethics. How should we live? You know, that if you want to just boil it down, the simple answer was to seek happiness. But I want to distinguish between, you know, happiness and the idea of pleasure, right? You know, in one of his quotes is, one swallow does not make a summer, swallow is in the bird. Just as one swallow doesn't prove that summer has arrived, a few moments of pleasure does not add up to true happiness. So what is happiness? What is it to seek it? Is it to enjoy vacations, good meals, uh, like parties or music festivals or whatever? This on its own is not eudaimonia to Aristotle. It's nice. It's pleasurable. But another quote that encapsulates everything we're talking about here is Aristotle says, happiness is an activity of the soul in accordance with virtue. And all that links back into everything that Andrew was talking about. Yeah, Aristotle. It's difficult to explain in an hour podcast because Aristotle is all all linked on top of each other. I kind of sped through that explanation of of why reason and action and virtue leads to happiness. Aristotle- I think we have an episode on Nicomachean ethics, actually. We do. Yeah, somewhere in there in the backlog. But it's so complicated because Aristotle, because of Aristotle's method, it's so complicated to explain mm-hmm. because every piece links on each other. And you can see it why does. that would make a very compelling and strong argument. It's really beautifully constructed. Yeah. Extending from this idea of virtue, eudaimonia, happiness, from a political perspective, Aristotle says we we can only achieve eudaimonia in relation to society. So he's really concerned with justice and how we should interact well with those around us in a well-ordered political state. So this is a good way to segue into his views on politics. For sure. So Aristotle's Nicomachean ethics and his politics are really meant to be one study on the best human life in a political community. And by political community, all I just mean is a when I say that, it's just a bunch of people who live together who, who have common interests. That's what Aristotle means by a political community. And so when, we're ta- when Aristotle's talking about ethics, in his ethics, it needs to be framed in the politics because, like Mr. Parsons said, they go hand in hand. Aristotle doesn't think a human being can be happy without living in a political community and not a political community unlike, uh, you know, in, in the modern sense of politics, but just in a a community that lives together and works together and such. Aristotle on politics is contentious in a lot of places, and we we definitely need to talk about that. But basically, it's a very similar project to Plato's Republic. Aristotle's thinking about what the ideal state is, and he's not thinking about what the ideal state is in terms of, you know, what's going to be the strongest state or, or what's going to make the people the richest or something. It's going to be the state with the most virtue and that's going to allow citizens to be the most virtuous. So he's just thinking of, in his terms, what an excellent state will be. 
And so he goes around with kind of similar methods. He thinks, you know, what's the function of a state? What's its purpose? And then tries to go from there, thinking about what a state's purpose is and its function and such, into thinking like how we get there. It's the right people leading and, and such. I think one of the fascinating things about this particular topic in philosophy is this is one of, I think, the, one of the fundamental questions of existence. How do we best live together? We know that human beings cannot live in isolation. I mean, if we do, we're not going to last very long. It did not take long in the Neolithic cultures to figure out that we needed to cooperate in some way. So whether that's a community of like 50 people, or of course, when empires and city-states come along eventually in ancient Mesopotamia and Egypt, we're putting all these people together. How should we best live together and how should that be governed? And the more complex and larger the society gets, the more difficult that question is. So I don't know, just something I, th- I think about when I think of Plato and Aristotle and their idea. Like, this is an important question. This isn't something they were just kicking around. And no doubt the political instability of the era that they lived in certainly made this a, a very important question. And I think it's still an important question today. I mean, we have political instability. Just look at the 20th century with all the competing ideologies from fascism to communism to democracy. Yeah. How best uh, should we live together? Exactly. That's exactly right. So one of um, Aristotle's big projects in the politics that's really influential to us is thinking about what's the best form of government. And Plato's famous for hating on democracy. Aristotle's less so. So Aristotle's famous for thinking of three virtuous types of governments and three vicious types of governments that are all related and all kind of feed back into each other. And this is used a lot in the in, in Romans, not the Book of Romans, but uh, Cicero talks a lot about this model. Um, it's pulled up by many, many political philosophers after Aristotle. But this is where it starts, I believe. An ideal government will be kingship, but that will lead into tyranny. That tyranny will lead into kind of an aristocracy, which is, he thinks, a kind of virtuous form of government. That virtuous form of government of aristocracy will devolve into oligarchy, which is a vicious form of government, that oligarchy will lead into kind of a constitutional government. And that constitutional government will lead into democracy, which he thinks is a vicious form of government. And let me just read this next line, because I think it'll give some context. For tyranny is a kind of monarchy, which has in view the interest of the monarchy only. Oligarchy has in view the interest of the wealthy, democracy of the needy, none of them the common good at all. So Hmm. it's thinking a lot about power structures, but what makes a a, a government vicious is when they stop thinking about what they can do for other people and starts thinking about how they can use that power to just benefit themselves. So this is making me think of a line of reasoning that I have used the last couple of years. I really try not to talk politics with people, (laughs) but- there was a certain uh, political leader whose views I did not share. And when people ask me like, well, well, look at the economy. Isn't it great? Or look at this. It's, it's working so well. Uh, what's the problem? And my response was always just that particular politician lacks virtue. And uh, <laughs> so I guess I'm, a, I'm an Aristotelian. <laughs> because, uh, yeah, you know, if you go with this idea that, you know, if we all follow the virtues, we live in a virtuous state. It will naturally lead, like the byproduct will sort of be a, a natural sort of harmony, right? Yeah. Um, and that's probably a bit idealistic, but maybe not. I mean, so, you know, politics is a nasty game, and I don't know how virtuous any of them are. But I do always kind of look for the person who is what I call, you know, the most virtuous of whoever there is to vote for. Yeah, I don't think I have anything else to add about that. So are there criticisms of this Aristotelian model? Yeah, there's some criticisms. Do you want to talk about, um, I, this is a good segue to that elephant in the room topic, but yes, there are, there are criticisms of Aristotle. One of his ethical views is that basically you need to do the right thing in the right time for the right reasons. And this kind of goes with his political view that really you need the right people, not just in, in governance, but in every part of society to do the right thing at the right time 
but most importantly in relation to themselves. So a good society or a good polis, a good community, it's not going to work if people aren't doing what Aristotle thinks they can best do. And so Aristotle classifies people based on what he thinks they will do best. And here's the big elephant in the room that is important to address and that we kind of brought up. Aristotle thinks that, for one, men are better at some things and that women are better at other things. Aristotle thinks that a man is better at leading a state and a woman is better at leading a household. And so Aristotle's not going to be a fan, unlike Plato, of women really getting involved in politics because he kind of thinks it's against their nature. Secondly, Aristotle also believes in an idea of natural slavery. And this is not slavery in the sense of, it's not racial slavery, it's not slavery based on really anything except kind of an intellect. He thinks that some people just do not have the natural disposition to lead. Aristotle just thinks that some people do not have the capacities to lead in society and that some are just better at taking orders and doing work. I don't think I need to say this, but I think it, I should. These are not the parts of Aristotle that I particularly like and that in Neo-Aristotelianism, these things are, are amended and mm-hmm. I don't think anyone's a, a huge fan of these. And we can talk about why in a minute, but Mr. Parsons, do you want to say anything about this first? Well, I mean, they were certainly used to justify all kinds of actions uh, in, mm-hmm. in the past of, of human sure. history. Yeah. Uh, uh, yeah, it's a, great, it's a great point to, you know, ask the question of what do we do when great thinkers or great leaders do things that either A, we don't agree with, or B, are, are just seem plain wrong? You can think of all kinds of leaders. I mean, I remember Brown University has a statue of Marcus Aurelius, and there was a movement at one point to remove that statue because Marcus Aurelius had slaves. What do you do about that? A great leader, a very thoughtful leader, obviously, a great Stoic, but had slaves. You know, you could say the same thing of some of our early American founders, George Washington and Thomas Jefferson, of course, both owned slaves. One of the famous uh, early 20th century existentialist Heidegger uh, eventually joined the Nazi party. Uh, does that mean being in time is not an important philosophical work? And some of these offenses, I think, are worse than perhaps Aristotle's claims about women and slaves. That was obviously a product of his particular time. You could say with Heidegger, well, you know, joining the Nazi party was a, a, <laughs> a result of his particular time. So I don't have an answer to any of that, except that everyone is human and philosophers are also human and no philosopher claims to be completely right. That's kind of one of the aims of philosophy to avoid absolutism. Yeah. And that even involves yourself. So yeah, it doesn't mean uh, we let Aristotle off the hook. It does mean that it's important to acknowledge when someone like Aristotle or anyone really, but especially people who are thought of as or looked to as great leaders or great thinkers, when they get things wrong, it's always important to talk about those, right? Philosophy is replete with these types of examples of needing to discuss questionable beliefs that great thinkers have held. There's this famous philosopher in ancient philosophy named Agnes Callard, who is a professor at University of Chicago focuses a lot on this stuff. And she wrote this very famous article in 2020, in actually July of 2020, when there was a lot of conversations about similar things, an opinion piece called, uh, Should We Cancel Aristotle? I highly recommend people check this out. This is a New York Times opinion piece, where she argues that, let me just quote this real quick. She gives us this thought experiment. I can imagine a circumstances under which an alien could say women are inferior to men without arousing offense in me. Suppose this alien had no gender on their planet and drew the conclusion of female inferiority from time spent observing ours. As long as the alien spoke to me respectfully, I would not only be willing to hear them out, but even interested to learn their argument. I read Aristotle as such an alien. His approach to ethics was empirical. 
That is, it was based on observation. And when he looked around, he saw a world of slavery and the subjugation of women and manual laborers, a situation he then inscribed into his ethical theory. When I read him, I see that view of the world, and that's all. I do not read an evil intent or ulterior motive behind his words. I do not interpret them as a mark of his bad character as an attempt to convey a dangerous message that I might need to combat or silence in order to protect the valuable. Of course, in one sense, it is hard to imagine a more dangerous idea than the one he articulated and argued for. But dangerousness, as I have been arguing, is less of a matter of literal content than messaging content. And her point in that article is basically, we shouldn't just discard Aristotle's ideas in his politics because he brings up this idea of natural slavery and the inferiority of certain people. We need to recognize that's wrong, but we need to also recognize why he put that in there and that's, that as a context of his age um, and time. And if we discard that just because he makes some wrong ethical points, we're losing the opportunity to recognize in a more full sense why those things such as racism and sexism and ableism and all of this stuff is really wrong. And it gives us this great opportunity to, to understand that in a better way. So pretty good article. Highly recommend. Yeah, I have nothing to add to that. I was really wishing I could think of, of other examples. I know Simone de Beauvoir has some things that people have to there's talk a, about. There's a lot. She she mentions a few. Kant and Hume made racist sexments. Freig made anti-Semitic sure. ones. Wittgenstein was sexist. Yeah. It's its own philosophical question, isn't it? Uh, we, yeah. <laughs> what do we do with, with the great thinkers who... Uh, who held some beliefs that uh, does not agree with our current ethical viewpoint. Anyways, let's move on to some happier topics. Uh, yeah, we, we can we can make this one quick because I think this one's related. A big part of ethical decision making and good political decision making for Aristotle is deliberation. Deliberation is a part of practical wisdom and informs how we act in the world and how we make good decisions, and more importantly, how we make virtuous decisions. And one of Aristotle's main concerns, we need to frame him in his time too, uh, which we've done in a lot of these past episodes thinking about Athenian life, is the assembly. Now in the assembly, just for a bit of context, what they did was they would raise an issue, maybe an issue or two for a day, and the people present at the assembly would vote what they should do on that topic. And they only had one day to make a decision. It's not like modern politics where we can uh, sit in Congress and debate about an issue and propose a number of bills. They had basically a day from sunset, sunrise to sunset to debate an issue. And Aristotle's concerned I about this, hope they this, didn't right? have daylight savings time. Yeah, I know. <laughs> Affects the political process. but Anyway, dumb er, joke, sorry. No, no, it's not dumb. But Aristotle's concerned about this because it's really, he seems like, he, he thinks it's really hard to make good decisions, not only make good decisions, but raise good answers to those decisions or raise answers to problems in a day. I mean, that seems really difficult, right? But it seems necessary to do right for a good state. He, what he wants to uh, bring upon Athens they're going to have to make these decisions, good decisions, no less, to problems that occur and, and make that decision with a win a day. So in response to this, he writes the rhetoric. Our friend Robin Waterfield and one of my advisors co-translated Aristotle's rhetoric. It's called The Art of Rhetoric from Oxford. I highly recommend it. It's really good. But anyway, this book is basically a way that Aristotle advises that political thinkers think about making good decisions, think about making good decisions, and not only that, arguing for those good decisions. So the rhetoric is a book on argument and good decision making. We can contrast uh, in, in Plato, rhetoric is thought to be a very bad thing. Aristotle rhetoric is meant to be a thing that can be an art if done well. The only other thing for me to add is we need to keep in mind, there was a lot of these sophists who taught demagogues, people who would popularly argue for things in the assembly to speak. And that was a problem. Aristotle thought that these people were basically corrupting Athens by arguing what was popular to increase their own power. 
And so that's not what his rhetoric is about. His rhetoric's also about a way that people who are not making speeches can judge these political speeches too. But really, the only reason I raise this point up is just to show Aristotle's holistic approach in thinking about things. So he doesn't just stop about thinking about what the ideal republic is. He goes into depth, explains how we form this ideal republic by looking at tools we use, such as rhetoric. Yeah, it's just another great example of the importance of of Aristotle. And I think maybe, I don't know, I might have said it in this episode, but definitely said it in the in the Plato episode. When you take Aristotle and Plato together, oh my gosh, like that can be an entire career in philosophy, just those two philosophers. And they span the breadth of almost everything that's significant in philosophy and ideas that develop post-classical Greece all still, in a way, uh, come back to arguments and viewpoints of Plato and Aristotle. So I hope these last two episodes have uh, at least provided enough of a overview that you might arrive at that conclusion and uh, or question it. It's philosophy. We can do that. And Check out some of the resources we have on the website if you want to look at the, you know, the direct source work that we're that we're talking about here with with both of these philosophers. All right, everybody. Well, hey, that's it. That's our series on who were. So we did the uh, pre-Socratics, Socrates, Plato. And Aristotle. This is like a nice approach to talk about philosophers and theories without getting too in-depth. Nice introductory information about them. So we will probably continue this type of series from time to time with with other series of philosophers. But uh, that is it for now on this particular series. We hope you enjoyed it. If you want to send us some feedback of what you thought of the episodes or or anything related to the to the content, I guess that's the same thing. Anyway, you can email us at contact at opendoorphilosophy.com. And you can also find us on uh, Instagram at Open Door Philosophy, as well as Twitter and my own personal Twitter, where all your philosophical dreams will come true. Uh, <laughs> find us in, in many places. And of course, our website, opendoorphilosophy.com. Thank you so much to Kevin McLeod for the use of his free music in our episodes. We really enjoy it. I always say it's groovy. I always really like it. Thank you so much. Yeah, absolutely. Gosh, is there anything else? I think that's it. I think that's all. Yeah. Okay. Well, hey, everyone out there, have a great time, whatever it is that you're doing, but you know, do it virtuously. Okay? Do it virtuously. That's right. All right. And we'll see you next time. Remember, when you are in need of a little philosophy, the door is always open. See you next time. Peace.